Hello and welcome back to the It's Complicated podcast. And wow, it feels great to say that after a very long hiatus, we are finally back in the saddle and have a very special episode for you today. I say that because not only are we going to be addressing a really important problem, that being accessibility and inversely the inaccessibility of therapy, not just in Berlin, but all around the world. We are also going to be talking to people that are trying to get out there and do something about it. As most of us probably know, there are a lot of hurdles to finding and seeing a therapist. And what's worse is that those hurdles can be dramatically higher for some people than for others. This is not just a problem of psychotherapy in itself. It's also a problem of healthcare, issues of education, of culture, of poverty, and so forth, all get woven into this problem and look dramatically different everywhere you go and for every different person. Really, there are a lot of avenues we can take into this vast and murky set of issues, but today we are going to spotlight three Berlin-based projects, which in their own way are trying to carve paths around the barriers that keep so many people from having access to therapy. To start off, I'm going to share a conversation I'm really excited about, someone who I've been hoping would someday appear on the podcast ever since I learned about the project when it popped up on social media this summer. That is a conversation with Kim Jamat, who founded the Queer Black Therapy Fund. Next, I'm going to share a conversation with Berlin-based psychotherapist Catherine Dennis, who is in the early stages of a super interesting initiative where people who do not have the financial means to afford therapy can trade hours of community service or volunteer work for hours of therapy. That project is called Expanding Circles. And finally, saving the fun part for last. Just kidding, it's all the fun part. Just do wait and see. I will be speaking with Berlin's very own meme-posting Instagram sensation, Berlin Auslander Memes, and we're going to be talking about when darkness becomes dark humor and how to turn a twisted meme page into a force for good. Before we jump into this very inspiring journey of excellent people finding novel solutions to an age-old problem, I have something really important to tell you. It's Complicated is a web directory making it simple to find the right therapist. No matter what kind of therapy you are looking for, It's Complicated offers a safe space to connect with a practitioner. Please pay us a visit online at complicated.life. And if you like the content that you get here on the show, you will absolutely love our blog. You can find that very simply at blog.complicated.life. Now, we've got a lot of talking to do today, so let's get right into it. First up, let's jump into our first conversation with Kim Ojemat on the Berlin-based project Queer Black Therapy Fund. Let's go to the interview. The Queer Black Therapy Fund is definitely still growing and developing. As of right now, the plan is that I will fundraise and the goal is 65,000 euro. that 65,000 euro will go to providing 10 black queer individuals in Germany with therapy for one year. There will be an application process of, of sorts because we anticipate that there will be a lot of people like interested in accessing the fund. So we're going to have um, people kind of let us know that they're interested. And then when we have developed our assessment of sorts to give out to the people who are interested, I myself and then some colleagues will go through these assessments and we're still kind of working on the criteria that we want to use to select clients. And then we'll go through this and we'll select 10 people to be allocated to 10 different therapists. 
And yeah, kind of at the same time that we're fundraising behind the scenes, we're also trying to build this network of competent counselors and therapists to work with the recipients of the fund. So after we uh, go through assessments and pick the 10 clients, then we have this small network of therapists that these clients can choose from and they will receive therapy for one year. And then on the other side of things, we're also trying to put arrangements in place for other people who may have applied to access the fund, but aren't able to. So maybe things like group therapy or having some therapists have like uh, spots for either like low cost or sliding scale so that we can still attempt to you know, kind of um, allocate the people who try to access the fund to some sort of care so that we don't have to just give people a hard no and just turn them away. So that's very kind of generally how, how, yeah, I'm hoping things will work out. But we're still in this process of fundraising right now. Okay, so there's sort of a stepped or tiered approach. So you can still help people find resources, even if they aren't the select 10 that get a year of one-on-one talk therapy or so. So that's great. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, though, for you, when this first became an idea, when the need first sort of became apparent to you, and then at what moment you decided that this was going to be your project, that you were just going to be the one to have to do it? (laughs) I think um, this year... This summer, actually, I was really um, motivated or inspired by uh, a similar initiative in London, actually. And they had like um, had started with a smaller goal and then had exceeded that and were able to kind of create this yeah network where they were able to per- provide therapy at no cost to Black queer people within the UK. And then kind of where I was sitting, being in Berlin and being a Black queer therapist and always getting many requests for people seeking um, kind of that specifically or just uh, recommendations on therapists that are competent with working with like cultural difference or like differences in sexuality. And, you know, my private practice being full and then kind of realizing that I had nowhere that I could confidently um, refer these clients to. So then it was kind of those two things together kind of got the wheels turning a bit. And then I was like, okay, maybe this is something that I could um, do here. And then, yeah, just kind of started thinking about how that could work. I'm super fortunate to be supported in this endeavor by um, where I have my private practice at Still Point Spaces Berlin and also at GLAT. That's here, an organization here in Berlin that um, provides counseling and other services to queer BPOC people. Um, yeah, they're supporting me with this. So then I kind of met with them and talked about how I envisioned things to work and where they could support me. And that's kind of, yeah, how this came to life. And I think, yeah, we started on September 23rd was when it went like live on the internet. And yeah, we've been fundraising since then. Right. Berlin is, is very full of therapists, but also full of very uh, a variety of different therapist networks. And it's great that you've been able to kind of tap into that and grow within this very particular ecosystem that exists in the city. Um, that said, even with so many therapists around the city, it is still mm-hmm. not easy for everyone to find help when they need it. Yeah. And as you point out in your mission statement, that is particularly true for Black people and even more so for queer Black people. So can you talk a bit about what those hurdles look like 
and how the Queer Black Therapy Fund in particular is growing its own network to try to address this problem. Yeah. So when I say uh, clients have a difficult time finding therapists to kind of meet their needs, I have heard often from clients or just peers saying that they have had um, tried to access therapy and maybe they have been able to get into therapy, but then maybe they're in front of a provider who doesn't understand how queerness impacts their kind of lived experience or understand queerness at all. And uh, something that I often hear is that people feel as if they're in a position of teaching their therapist or the therapist makes a remark that they don't realize is harmful to the client. And then the client kind of leaves the space feeling more damaged than before. Um, which is, you know, clearly not what we want from the therapeutic process. And then the same comes when it when it comes to race, you know, and you want to talk about racial trauma or any topics that might be related to race and maybe you're a Black queer person in front of a white therapist and those issues might be minimized, which is a narrative that I've heard before. And yeah, and it just becomes difficult to kind of go into a space when you might feel like you're not being seen or understood or you know, that you have to kind of teach this person about your experience. So with the Black Queer Therapy Fund, it's not necessarily that we're only building a network of therapists that are Black and queer. Like, of course, we would love for those therapists to be a part of this, but it's more of getting therapists that have an understanding and at least an openness to learn on their own to kind of be able to, even in the room, if you're not, you don't have to be queer or be an expert on queerness to kind of work with someone. But yeah, kind of having that that understanding and that openness to kind of be with the, the client and yeah, try to figure out what their needs are and like meet them there um, and realize that these kind of intersections are going to impact the client's lived experience and incorporate that into the work. That's kind of my hope with this network. And so far, it's been really great. Like you were saying, there are a bunch of different therapist networks in Berlin, and it's really given me the opportunity to connect with peers that I might not have before. So that's been really great in this process as well. Right. You know, something something that comes up again and again on the show and is generally a really big and important topic in psychotherapy is the therapeutic relationship between the client and the therapist. Um, and this is, of course, something which is mm-hmm. critical in just about any kind of practice that's out there. And I was just thinking, as you were speaking, how the disconnects that you're talking about could really potentially hinder the growth of that therapeutic relationship that the client feels like they have to educate or explain even basic things about themselves and their identity to the therapist. And that's great how a solution to this problem is sort of baked into the queer black therapy front from the very start. And I can imagine this will save people benefiting from the fund in the future a lot of consultations and potentially a lot of stress Mm -hmm. and frustration. And speaking of which, I also understand that the project is in its early days. And I'm curious how far along you are today. Uh, For example, have you started placing people with therapists yet? We have not yet, but we're almost there. The hope is that um, by next month, we'll start kind of receiving um, interest from people and then get the the wheels moving in terms of allocating clients to therapists. Um, I think when I began this, I had this dream of we'd get the 65,000 euro, we'd raise that amount and then be able to just 
start from there and allocate 10 people kind of at the same time. But right now it's kind of seeming like it will be more of a, a tiered thing, you know, kind of as we raise money, then we can allocate um, clients to these, uh, to these therapists. So yeah, hopefully spring next year is when we will begin that allocation process. So just to kind of break the fourth wall here to anyone out there listening, that means you can help. There will be a link provided in the show notes and everything you need to know to figure out how you can donate and make this come into being sooner. Mm-hmm. So on that note, in your biggest, wildest daydreams, mm-hmm. what kind of future can you imagine for the Queer Black Therapy Fund? What is the absolute best case scenario you can picture? Ooh, okay. Um, well, I feel like very much in fantasy in the sense that you know, I'm not sure what the next steps would be. Like I could see maybe this could turn into some kind of like NGO or like charity organization that kind of works specifically with black queer people as some kind of hub and they can come to us and help them, yeah, access mental health care that is adequate for their needs. And it could be this kind of continual thing of, yeah, clients who are in need can come to us and then this network of culturally competent therapists network can grow and it can be this thing of like continual care and not just, you know, because of course I would like this to be accessible, therapy to be as accessible as possible. And this initiative is, you know, targeted towards 10 people. But, you know, in my fantasy, it could be for, you know, all the Black queer people in Berlin, a place that they can go and, yeah, access care or at least access information uh, relevant to them. Yeah, that's kind of my vision. Another dream of mine that has been, I think, since I've started training as a therapist is having a culturally competent therapist, um, what would you call it? Like, center where maybe their talk therapies and other holistic therapies maybe like I don't know like Reiki or like somatic body work and kind of practitioners having this space together so it's not only about um, like mental health and only talk therapy which I think yeah is amazing but also other forms of support that yeah is just more holistic and kind of overall care for mental health and overall well-being um so yeah if that and the queer black therapy fund like my fantasy of those things can come together i think that would be like the ultimate dream for me mm. so like really going full wellness here full wellness yeah <laughs> that was kim Jamat talking about the queer black therapy fund this is a berlin-based project i hope that someday it becomes much grander in scope but that that'll only happen if you donate if anyone donate, if everyone donates, I hope that all of you listening go onto the blog and find the link where you can donate and learn more about the Queer Black Therapy Fund. Of course, you can also bypass the It's Complicated blog and go straight to gofundme.com forward slash f forward slash queer dash black dash therapy fund. And you can donate. I'm looking at it right now. There are 9,052 euros put towards 65,000. So there's a ways to go. And we want this thing to be funded soon we want to see this happen because it's an incredible project there is a great need for it and you can do something about it so go online go to the link that i just described or go to the it's complicated blog and give towards this fantastic project 
Now, it's really exciting to talk about not just the models and ways in which people find solutions to the problem of therapy being inaccessible, but it's so exciting that on this episode, we get to look at examples of people who are trying to solve this issue and offering real solutions that are active right now. The next one that I want to talk about is a project called Expanding Circles that is just in its earliest days, although it has been an idea for a long time. It is just in the very beginning stages, and it is a project by a psychotherapist named Catherine Dennis. The basic sort of premise, which I won't give too much away, I'll leave it for the, for the conversation, but the basic premise is that if you cannot afford therapy, the alternative in this model says that you can, you can participate in verified community service time and then trade that for time with a therapist. And not only is this something that Catherine is sort of implementing into her own practice, but to set up a sort of structure and a platform where practitioners with different kinds of expertise can be operating around the world. So with Kimoy, we were sort of discussing how one therapist isn't right for everyone, right? So in this model, not only is there a means of affording therapy, not with money, but with time and community engagement, but also that by building this network, there will be practitioners participating in this program around the world with specific expertise. So if a person does not have access to a particular kind of therapy, there is a vast network of people who can work with that person online by trading community service time for hours in therapy. As I mentioned, it's just in the beginning stages, so it's not there yet, but I'm gonna let Catherine fill in all the other details. It's a great conversation, so please stay tuned. This is Catherine Dennis with Expanding Circles. Let's go to the interview. So I have been a therapist since 2015. I studied philosophy with a minor in social anthropology before that, and I had a little blip at art school. Um, So that is relevant because of where I've ended up today in my practice. So I tend to have a very person-centered practice. I have since continued studying a lot (laughs) and have a bunch of diplomas and and, and a few masters in different schools of of psychology, which means that I can dip in and out of different um, kind of perspectives depending on the client's needs. So it is not the same to come to therapy because you just, um, you're trying to get over a breakup or your company um, just went bankrupt or et cetera, et cetera. And it would require different things for me. So I like to do these interviews before I start with people just to make sure that we're the right fit, that I can help, you know, Mm. and that I understand what they're looking for in therapy. And depending on that kind of depends on how I approach therapy, I suppose. Mm. It sounds like your practice is actually quite flexible. There's a lot of tools in the toolkit. There is a lot of tools in the toolkit. And I think also it really depends on your personal style. So I do a lot of existential therapy. I do a lot of narrative therapy. Um, I, I, I love philosophy. I love literature. I love art. I love music. I love breath work. So really depending on what I feel and what you're communicating um, would be kind of the most useful intervention. Mm-hmm. It's either very kind of CBT solution focused or it's like a big philosophical journey into the meaning of death and everything Mm -hmm. in between so (laughs) it kind of depends on the person um i think having trained to work with children for a few years just developmentally whether at right like just even the 
centers of the brain that they work with. I mean, they haven't finished activating their, their prefrontal lobe, which is, you know, abstract thought and imagination mm. and like all of these things. They're, they're very literal. And so you really learn <laughs> to be very practical, right? And to, to kind of A, then B, then C, mm. right? There's an action, there's a behavior, and there's a consequence. And that is brilliant, right? And it works really well for a lot of things. But then other things and other uh, reasons that people come to therapy often, I mean, it's not it's not that simple, right? It's nuanced and it's about policy and politics and philosophy and life purpose and meaning and all of these things. And so you kind of have to pull in from, from other spheres. I also, I just personally, I'm very interested in consciousness is like it's like a subject so i have all these books and i read a lot about this consciousness and all the theories and, and all of this thing and i think that also um permeates my therapy and means that i don't always i don't always stick to like traditional cbt mm -hmm. you're interested in so many approaches I, I might also assume that you're interested in a lot of different kinds of people and experiences and this brings up the mentorship program which you, which you develop for people who might not otherwise have access to mental health care. I want to talk to you about how this began and also what the vision of this uh, is for. Like, how does it work and who is it working for? Mm, okay, so firstly, it's a project that's in development. Um, so it's just my little side projects that I was doing for me. But um, now I am in the process of looking for funding and creating prototypes to make it a bigger platform. The idea is to for it to be like this big thing, but, but we'll see. So I have a little company called Expanding Circles. It has like three primary pillars. So the first pillar is my psychotherapy practice. The second pillar is workshops and talks. I work with universities, startups, um, companies here on, on different things. And the third pillar is the mentorship program. So the Expanding Circles mentorship program started a few years ago, um, less than five, more than three. And the idea behind it was to play with possibilities of payment outside of money. At the time, I had this line, you know, this kind of little act of resistance <laughs> against capitalism in my head. And I was like, okay, what's going to be my little act of resistance? I'm very passionate about my job. I, I really love therapy, but, but one of the things that I've always struggled with therapy are these power dynamics, right? Like I'm, it's a very medical model. So I know about you and, you know, you're, you're broken. And so you're coming here. I'm going to, diagnose you, um, figure out which bit is broken and then, and then fix it. That's not how I view therapy at all. I view myself as more of a conversation facilitator, right? So instead of it being that you need to do something, right, to achieve personhood or happiness or health, right? Um, and it's something outside of you, the way that I conceive it is that now, flip it around right like you already have all of the answers and you already are yourself and you, you know what makes you happy already makes you happy like all the information is in there the mm -hmm. question isn't what do you need to do but the question is what are you doing or not doing that is impeding the expression of this like natural healthy um flow of who you are 
right? Does that make sense? So that's one thing that I've never kind of vibed with with therapy. And the other thing is that it is really expensive, right? It is a very elitist, very expensive mm. um, thing. Nobody can afford therapy, right? And and usually, you know, the the narrative therapy model is it. The slogan is that you're not the problem. The problem is the problem. And often the problem isn't that you have um, kind of a crippling anxiety disorder or a depression because of an imbalance in your neurochemical. Like often the problem is that policy, right? And um, a lack of financial stability and a lack of tools to deal with anxiety, right? Anxiety management or understanding your own feelings, understanding your own brain. And so I really wanted to kind of begin to play with all of those things. And what ended up coming out of there was this uh, mentorship program. So the idea behind the mentorship program um, is that you pay, right, in quotes, for your hours of online psychotherapy with hours of mentorship in your community, right? So this can be hours of service, charity work, mentorship. The idea is the people that come on the program, not only is it a nice kind of pay it forward scheme, but connecting to something that you can do and connecting to your local community is part of the healing work, right? Um, so I briefly worked with UNESCO and I've lived all over the world and, and I've worked in many different clinics and I had access to a lot of people who wouldn't have otherwise been able to have access to mental health services because of where they live, right? In the middle of Turkey or Ghana or Venezuela or, you know, I myself in, in Colombia and therapy, frankly, is only for a certain percentage of the population. Or at least this this kind of non-pathologizing conversation, psychoeducational kind of therapy. So the idea is that you apply Right. I, I, I am not going to do all of the work. So part of the thing, if you want to come on the program is that you have to do the work, right? You have to send a proposal to, um, to me with how you can be of service to your local community, perhaps what skills you have or the time that you uh, can afford to play with and how you can be a mentor or of service to somebody in your community. And then I will vet that. Um, and then exchange two hours of service for one hour of online psychotherapy. And the contracts are three-month rolling contracts. So three months, and then we can continue mm. to six, and we can continue to up to a year. I'm curious about the practicalities of this. I mean, is, is this a session that you're then ostensibly donating? Or, or I manage, imagine if you're finding funding for it, then there's a source of income elsewhere if there's support. But ultimately, by agreeing that, yes, you know, I'm verifying that these hours of service that you've done at a homeless shelter, for example, or something like this, that that then can then be traded in for therapy. Okay, well, I, I see how that works practically. And I'm also, I mean, you meant, you touched on this a little bit, but I imagine that while this is a great way for people who specifically cannot afford therapy to have access to it, that it would also, it could be useful actually for anyone. I mean, I imagine that actually having a person be out in the world and finding some kind of sense of purpose, maybe directly or indirectly through these actions, that that could be a pretty important part of a healing process depending on what it is they want to yeah exactly so that is kind of one of the primary ideas behind this this project right so the funding actually just to go back to something you said a minute ago the funding isn't actually to pay my wages so it is essentially kind of pro bono work so i have a maximum number that i can see but 
what the funding is for is that I'm actually in the process of building a little prototype, but the funding is to build a platform, right? Where you have your mentors and you have your mentees. And so the therapists, psychiatrists, nutritionists from all over the world, right? I think we're all in a place where we would really like to contribute to society. A lot of us have a lot of anxiety about our profession and, and how we can, um, improve access and, and pricing, but we also have to make a living, right? Uh, you can, in theory, the idea is to build a platform where, um, let's say, a lot of us have a lot of white people guilt and you would feel better by donating an hour of your time, right? And kind of, I'm trying to capitalize on that a little bit. Um, and so you can sign up as a therapist and donate an hour a week. Right, it's an hour a week, and then I link you with somebody who needs therapy, you supervise their mentorship hours, right? Their hours of community, and you agree to like a three-month contract of therapy or a six-month contract of therapy or a year-long contract of therapy, right? Um, and you do that on a mm. voluntary basis by signing up to the program. So mm. hopefully, it will become a whole network of people who are, you know, exchanging uh, time for service. So the vision of this goes far beyond you. I mean, it could, as you sort of describe, it could potentially be something that's that's even international. The network could be quite. Uh, quite large indeed. Yeah, I mean, I'm dreaming big. To all of my colleagues who are listening, especially my friends that know me, I will right. be coming for you. <laughs> I expect everybody to <laughs> sign up and do at least an hour a week. Um, but yeah, no, that's the, that's the idea, right? right? Because also, um, if we're talking about accessibility, like at the moment, um, you know, I see girls in Turkey, in Kenya, um, in Venezuela, and through the program just with the, the girls that I see currently and there's a lot that I, I can't help them with. Um, I'm trying, I study, uh, I'm learning a lot, but it would be wonderful to have a whole community of international therapists with different specialties and different life experiences and, and, and different things that they can offer and, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, right. I think that is a very important point to bring up in a conversation with a project that is this sort of ambitious and plans to scale in this way is not just providing therapists, but providing therapists who have specialties in the regions that you're mm -hmm. working with, in the populations that you're working mm -hmm. with. Was there a specific instance where you first sort of saw the need for this? You talked about what the kind of motivations were, but were there one particular moment where this sort of, where the light bulb kind of went yeah, on? Yeah, um, I was working um, a few years ago with a community of international students and they were part of a program that um, they were all on scholarships from different countries around the world, uh, mostly like very low income families. And, and I had all this anxiety as a therapist about like me, essentially, <laughs> how good of a therapist I was and, and what I could give and, and, and how many books I'd read and, and all of these things. And was I really good enough to kind of hold? Like, I, like was I good enough to help? And then I, through working with them, I realized that my privilege was such that it didn't even occur to me that the basic, basic information that I had, even before studying psychology about mental health, about sexual health, you know, and nutrition, my rights, all of these things, I just, it didn't occur to me that they didn't even have access to that. And it didn't really matter mm. how fancy a therapist I was and how many titles I had, right? Um, just being able to share basic information about what anxiety is, right? That it's not you being fundamentally unable to life, right? And everybody else on the internet can life. 
that it is a perfectly natural human experience. And as soon as you start to understand it, you start to demystify it, right? You release a lot of the shame, which compounds the anxiety, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And it, it keeps you stuck in these feedback loops of isolation and shame and then coping mechanisms that are usually unhealthy because you weren't taught better coping mechanisms. You have no, you weren't taught emotional literacy um, and all of those things. So I think just realizing that independently of anything else, I could offer a basic psychoeducation that could potentially be really transforming. Um, And then doing it with this group of students and seeing what an effect it had um, in Spanish. So I'm, I'm Colombian and in Spanish there's a saying that it says, mientras más tener, más deber, which is uh, the more you have, the more you owe, <laughs> right? Um, and I'm a very, very privileged person, right? Even being from Colombia, my, my father is English, I'm very white, right? It opened a ton of doors for me at home. Colombia still, you know, there's still a lot of racism and stuff like that, and it worked to my benefit. My mother always said the same, right? She she came from a really loving family and, and all of this, and she always kind of communicated to me that, okay, like, like we're really privileged. Like, what are you doing? Like, you have to do more than the average person. And mm. those things kind of came together, and I thought, okay, this is something I can do, right? I have this vocation. I have this passion that I love. I read about it all day. I have all of this information, even if it's not deep psychotherapy, like just basics, you know, social, emotional psychoeducation about your feelings, your brain, how it works, how it might manifest in your body, some coping mechanisms, right? Access to information where you might even just naming it, right? Naming it. So it's not this bizarre feeling of dread that's floating in your body that you don't really know what it is and and you and you find it hard to exist in the world just saying like oh okay this is an anxiety attack right so that's kind of when i started doing it quite seriously also that project was limited um i wanted to continue working with them and and for me to do that it had to be for free and that's how it started (laughs) Mm. and now that you sort of have a kind of infrastructure that's built and is now being kind of scaled and grown i'm curious about one particular practicality Starting in Berlin, which is, of course, where we both are, are there particular services that people will be able to do or maybe are already doing? Um, like, will you have a sort of roster of options in terms of community service programs that people can engage with? And what might that look like? I mean, that's the idea, right? I'm diving into this whole subject, I think, more seriously as of as of January, right? I also have a full-time private practice and I, I tend to be quite busy. And I think also I didn't have the balls <laughs> to do this mm. um, formally. You know, as long as it stayed a little project, then I don't know. I, you know, it, it, it wouldn't kind of take over my life. I, I, I have a fear about this becoming a big startup and, um, and I'm not a fan of the grind culture. So I was nervous about right. it. Um, right. But the, the conversation around accessibility is one that's really close to my heart anyway. Um, so even in my private practice, right, I have different ways where you like groups or workshops and different uh, uh, scaling payment, right? But the interest that I have received from my colleagues, from friends, um, where we are politically um spiritually, ethically, like there's this such a hunger for it, especially the young people that I'm working with that I think, okay, shit, like I have 
no choice. Like this thing wants to be born <laughs> independently mm -hmm. of me. So, so let's do right. this. Right. And so one of the things that obviously um, we would have to provide is because of one of the, the, the first things that people ask me, like, yeah, no, I'm really interested in the program. I would totally do it. But right. The only thing right. I'm a little bit nervous of is that free therapy doesn't work. Right. And the effort that is um, kind of required to connect with yourself, to reach out to your local community, to kind of identify um, how you in particular could be of service. Like, what do you do well? What communities do you get along well? Do you like old people? Do you like young people? Uh, perhaps within your own family, right? Your grandparents, like, I don't know, something. Um, that is the payment, right? Because unfortunately, when when that a little bit of effort doesn't exist, it um it doesn't tend to work. So I'm also a little nervous of creating too many options. I would I would I would obviously um it would be dreamy to partner with a bunch of 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 people in Berlin. Um, there was, um, I worked with a girl briefly who um, donated her time at the music school um, in Berlin and uh, right right by it's complicated actually. And that worked really well. So, so that's an excellent kind of option for musicians. She worked with refugee children giving uh, music classes and, and that, that mm. would be amazing, right? Um, we would just have to test it and see what works and see what doesn't work. Mm. And, so it sounds like you have your, the work is kind of cut out for you. At least the initial big questions are, are, are <laughs> certainly there. But, you know, I will say, I know you, you've, ex you've expressed the kind of uh, hesitations that you've sort of been confronting, but now you have like half an hour of advertisement on the It's Complicated podcast. So, you know, <laughs> I hate to break it to you, but there's no going back now. I know. <laughs> um, oh, but I but knew that already. Like, you know, right, right. Of course. I mean, it sounds like this is, uh, an incredible idea with amazing potential. Uh, and I'm very excited to, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say this, maybe this is something to keep in mind that this time next year or in two years that we can come back again and you're going to tell me about all the successes that you've had and how it's grown. <laughs> I think people around me are wonderful and people in general, I think they're hungry for something like this. Um, my anxieties about not being business savvy or just generally very logical at all <laughs> um, have been kind of resolved by all the support that I've been receiving. And that I have a lot of people in my life that are helping me structure this um, in a way that, or just, just, I mean, to the point where it's happening. If you are interested in learning more about Catherine's work and about expanding circles, you can head to expandingcircles.co and check out the mentorship program section of her website. For our last segment today, we're going to shift gears a bit and speak to two people who are not in the mental health field, but are mostly known for their memes. Yes, you heard me correctly, memes. Up next, I'm going to share a conversation I had with the duo behind the notorious meme page, Berlin Auslander memes, Danny and Michael, who requested I refer to them just by their first names. If you're not familiar with the page, their humor revolves around caricaturizing a particular kind of disenchantment mixed with precarity that many non-Germans living in Berlin know as a daily reality. I wanted to talk to them about this theme in particular and try to get a sense of the real stories and lived experience behind these jokes. And further, now that they have built a following of over 100,000 in just over a year, 
They plan on making their platform a force for good by sharing kinds of resources which seem so desperately lacking in the world which they speak to through their memes. Before I give anything else away, let's go to the interview. This is Danny and Michael with Berlin Al Center Memes. <laughs> okay, I think we're all a bit tired today. Um, yeah, I think the substance of the memes um, and of the content comes from pretty much daily life in Berlin. I mean, um, for me, it's like I've been living in Berlin for about 10 years now. And um, despite being from Austria, which technically doesn't really make me an expat, I've had to um, deal with a lot of um, expat experiences because I was working in the nightlife um, industry. And um, there was a lot of musicians, teachers, producers who moved here. So I spent, I think, um, I, be <laughs> I became the go-to person for all the German bureaucracy. I, I think I spent as much time in front of the Ausländeramt queue um, as I spent in the Berghain queue. So, yeah, um, to answer your first question about, you know, describing it to people with no context, well, we are a meme page. Um, on Instagram, for people who don't know what a meme is, where have you been? <laughs> but basically, we share humorous content, you know, in meme formats um, that we create. Um, and the subject matter that we deal with is what it's like living uh, in, German, in Germany, um, you know, as an other or as an outsider of some kind. Told uh, through the eyes of like, you know, the international uh, person living in the country or living, living right here in Berlin. At least that's how it started. Um, as the page has progressed, um, because we deal with, um, you know, content that is really observational and insightful and, you know, pointing out aspects of German culture or daily life here that maybe are not that obvious to people who've grown up here or people who've been here for a long time. Um, we've also got a huge kind of following, at least half of our following comes from Germans and people, you know, living in Germany for a really long time who really appreciate uh, seeing a fresh perspective um, and seeing certain aspects of, you know, German culture or what it's like to live here called out um, by, yeah, from a different perspective. So that's what we do. <laughs> With that perspective in mind and being someone who's um, also myself not from Berlin, but living here, not from Germany, um, the, me the memes are quite absurd. Uh, and they certainly caricature an aspect of living uh, living in the city, at least for some. But there's also um, a level of of truth to them, which is sort of undeniable, and perhaps why the page is so, and perhaps why the page attracts so many followers. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking about this example, which sort of seemed to bring the most, the biggest wave of popularity to the page, which was a advertisement online for a for a room for rent, which was actually just someone's bathroom that you could rent to live in this person's bathroom. And it had all these kind of absurd conditions about having to be out at 6 a.m. for an hour. Was that actually a real post? I mean, it seemed like a meme in and of itself, but was that real? Um, yeah, so great story with this one. Um, so this was just a piece of, this was a meme, this, that screenshot, okay, that kicked it off was something that um, was shared with us. So, you know, we've been going for a while and people are always coming into our DMs saying, have you seen this or look at this or ha ha, or, you know, something that in some way follows up on a theme that we've already introduced on the page. So, um, you know, 
it's a running trope and a running theme, um, you know, for us, this idea of, you know, the, the housing crisis, I guess, how like hard it is to find an apartment, um, you know, how small and shitty the apartments are, how expensive, they, you know, rent has become, and of course, how it's, you know, always impossible to get a place with Unmelden. So that was sort of the context on page that I think brought that you know, that, uh, that post, which was a Facebook post, um, to our attention. We saw this, we read it, we we're like, okay, you know, is this, is this real? Is this fake? We don't know. It's one of those ones where it's hard to tell, but that in itself was what was important. We're like, the fact that this could be real says a lot about, <laughs> about the times we are living in and, uh, and also just, yeah, all the issues that we've been talking about. So we wanted to use this, we saw this as an opportunity to create a viral moment around this, uh, these issues, really highlight sort of discourse and stimulate debate around the housing crisis. That was our intention of sharing it and of course just everybody have fun i mean we posted the original post then we posted some memes um, that we made kind of in response to that using you know riffing off it um, in some way and then everybody we invited people to you know to do the same and yeah they did and it was sort of like a 24-hour kind of meme cycle i guess or a story cycle of everybody sharing content posting their own memes making their own memes having a you know a huge amount of fun um and yeah and then you know tons of comments and threads of people really discussing these realities in a more serious way but it, it actually seems possible that someone would rent out the bathroom on Wieselstrasse. And I know at least two people who have actually lived in a bathroom. I think that's also why it worked um, with people and that's also why it became viral because it is a possibility. It is our reality at the moment. As Dani mentioned, the housing crisis in Berlin. So, I mean, I think, you know, um, you know, to the sort of question of what is real and what is fake and how much is exaggerated. Yeah, I mean, I think memes as a comedy form as a art form <laughs> you know like other you know like most forms of comedy it does involve stretching or um i don't know accentuating um the truth there is hyperbole involved but you know it's always done that's a device that's a strategy to bring to attention you know the more serious kind of issues that belie the joke right and speaking of which i'm wondering if there are cases where something which did not start as humorous, such as this bathroom post, which is sort of a ready-made meme in and of itself. But are there circumstances or stories or experience maybe even you yourself have had, which were absolutely not funny to begin with, that then later became a meme on the page, which then later became ultimately a source of humor for your followers? I mean, yeah, I think, um, you know, just because you create a meme or a joke out of something doesn't mean that it's light. Um, you know, what's the function of comedy and, you know, humor in, in, in society generally, or like, you know, what's the psychological kind of function of jokes? It's to confront the painful things. So behind every, nearly every single meme is a painful reality, whether it's the linguistic exclusion, not being able to access things in your language, not finding a place to, a place to live, being constantly on edge and anxious because of your visa status, the trials and tribulations of dating in the city too. I think all of them come from very real experiences. In terms of where we draw this content from, or these experiences from, most of them are our own, but we also, I mean, you know, as 
I said before, we're really in constant dialogue with the people who follow us. They are always sharing their stories, making us aware of things, giving us their feedback on what they're going through, sharing their troubles, asking us for help because people, you know, sort of see us as that platform that can maybe, you know, escalate a concern or, you know, bring attention to an issue. So through the sort of dialogue with our audience, um, yeah, we really get to know the, the pain points of living here and experience it ourselves. I mean, you know, the first meme that we ever did, which was the Nancy Pelosi one, where she was tearing up Donald Trump's speech. And then, you know, the meme was, you know, me getting another letter from TK that really came out of a pretty dark, <laughs> a pretty dark moment for me where, um, yeah, I had, I had lost my job kind of recently. There was all this bureaucracy to go through with being unemployed. Um, you know, there was all this complicated stuff, you know, from, from TK, the health insurance of what I was needed when I was applying for like heart fear or whatever was going on. And I was really, really overwhelmed. And um, yeah, making a joke about it somehow made me feel better and sharing that joke and having other people, you know, feel better and, you know, relate to that and say, oh my God, me too. I'm going through the same thing. You know, that, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a form of um, therapy in a way. Right. Yeah. That, that meme like really sticks like glue in my mind as well, because that's how I feel in times when I've gotten a letter from the finance aunt. Uh. <laughs> we called it Briefschmerz. <laughs> we invented this word and it's a real word now because it's on Urban Dictionary with, I don't know, a couple of hundred upvotes. Um, <laughs> but we invented the word called Briefschmerz, which is the particular kind of pain you get and fear and anxiety you get from seeing you have mail. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. That's for all you non-Berliners out there or anybody not living in Germany, being afraid of your mail is a very real feeling I can certainly relate to. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it can also be used as a um just as a um as a word meaning general kind of anxiety where it's like oh you know um, i don't know i've got a test tomorrow i've got such brief schmerz <laughs> to describe a state of general psychological stress <laughs> i mean um this being a, a an outlet for people who are in a bad situation i mean when all this started when the mean badge started as Dani already said she was in a bad situation kind of there was a lot of time and I was also in a bad situation. I was pretty much suffering from a massive burnout. The lockdown just started. And um, so this also the, the whole page was also kind of uh, yeah therapeutic um, thing for me to kind of uh, get back to life a bit, you know? Right. Well, you know, I mean, as a rule, I, I don't follow meme pages except for Berlin Alsana memes. <laughs> But particularly because I live in uh, Neukon, where this this really you know like bombastic post about the bathroom uh, bathroom for rent was, and I feel like the humor on the page is kind of tuned particularly to this neighborhood. Yeah, we live here. <laughs> yeah, we, just... we have a room in your apartment free. Can I rent it? Is my apartment free? <laughs> no, I'm uh, not not possible. Sorry. Um, yeah, this, this one meme actually sticks out to me and I kind of cringe about it because I really wish that I couldn't relate to it as much as I actually can, but it's a, it's a bird that's like eating some piece of disgusting food and making a huge mess. And it says like, it says like me eating my donor on the U8 or something. And I hate it so much because I, as much as I would like to think that I have never been that person, I have completely been that person. 
I hate it so much because it's so close to real life and I it's like a part of the daily experience of being here that I would really just rather ignore. Um, but actually then f- kind of confronting it on the meme page and laughing about it and and, and realizing that like, oh, there was like 12,000 other people that liked this image. Um, there's a kind of like almost perverse or soft kind of cathartic freedom of, of acknowledging and uh, laughing with so many other people at this thing, which everyone would really rather turn the blind eye to when it's happening in front of you. Or you are, or hopefully, <laughs> or you are one of, or you are that person in a particularly compromising moment. <laughs> but you know, that, that kind of catharsis or that willing to, because look, when somebody engages with a meme like that, when likes it or comments it or shares it, it isn't a way admitting to that. Okay. It's being like, haha, laughing at them, laughing at me, you know, like our shared secret. Um, but, you know, there are things, sometimes there's topics we make, uh, you know, we make a meme about um, where as much as it's true, people feel too much shame to acknowledge it. Um, <laughs> and I think there's, uh, you know, there's definitely one that's consistent is this thing around like ordering food or ordering in. Um, there's really like weird defensive response that we get from, you know, just everybody when we when we post stuff around like Leferando or Bolt or you know just kind of this thing of getting you know getting food delivered to you and um, now we know that you know that everybody is doing that we like we you see it in your apartment like everybody you know this is not a fringe exercise to engage in especially during lockdown but um yeah we get like lots of comments you know just you know like oh you know like ordering in is you know that's why you shouldn't do it and you know, then people th- saying things of like, you know, the ethics of, you know, the, the, the drivers and it just seems to be such a strong reaction to kind of almost like deny, like, no, 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 not me. This is not me. <laughs> that it speaks to, um, yeah, it speaks to some level of, uh, of shame around it. I think. Right. Yeah. And much of the humor on the page speaks to kind of a sense of shame or darkness or things which we would normally not want to kind of look at, but they're making them somehow humorous. It's become such a wildly popular platform and voice and now that you have built this this following i understand that you have ambitions beyond being simply a meme page that you want to somehow use this for a force for good can you tell me a little bit about what your your ideas are there so yeah i mean i think um right back when we started it we knew that you know obviously we wanted to create great comedy um and yeah have a have a meme page in the in the most basic sense of it but we also identified that there was something of a community building project here or potential for that kind of thing um, and as the you know the page grew and our relationship with our sort of audience also developed um, yeah we began to see that um, yeah, we had we basically had a group, a community of people with really with really really real problems or really real needs, um, and maybe we had an opportunity to connect them with information, products, tools, resources that would that would help them. So you know, as we've kind of gone along, um, we yeah we try and fulfill that I guess whether it's sort of sharing information or yeah, partnering with uh, companies or products or services that help people meet their needs. Like for example, um, you know, doing your tax really simply. And then, yeah, and then we've got a, a, a few projects lined up. Um, one of the 
projects that we're really excited about and um, that will hopefully launch sooner than later is a content partnership with uh, It's Complicated, um, which is a fantastic platform for finding, uh, you know, a, a really good therapist <laughs> here in Berlin and beyond um, and matching you with the right therapist. Um, we have a plan to uh, produce some content, you know, for our audience on just breaking down almost like the, the phases of what it means to, you know, to, to access therapy. So from, you know, the very beginning of, you know, tackling questions like, you know, do I need therapy? What can I expect from therapy? Um, answering questions like what happens in therapy? What's the difference between the different kinds of, you know, therapeutic styles and which one is a, is a match for me? How do I choose a therapist? So, um, you know, definitely we know um, from our page that, yeah, that it's, a, it's stressful um, living here as a, as a, um, a member of the international community. There's lots of, um, you know, potential, uh, I guess, pitfalls um, associated with major life transitions, which a lot of people, you know, are in here. They've moved, you know, they've given up their old lives, they're starting afresh, or maybe they're doing something really challenging, like coming here to study, they're coping with language barriers, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, of course, there's just, you know, the nature of, you know, Berlin as a city itself. Um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty rough city. It can be tough. It can be harsh. It can be hard. Um, and yeah, a lot of people do fall through the cracks, um, you know, due to lack of support or not knowing how, not knowing how to reach out. So, you know, we really want to um, provide them with, you know, the, the resources and the information necessary to orient them um, in their search or in their reaching out for help. Um, you know, from the very first steps. And that concludes the final conversation for our show today with Danny and Michael of Berlin Alzheimer Memes. I would like to say a massive thank you to them, as well to Kimoa Jamat of the Queer Black Therapy Fund and Catherine Dennis of Expanding Circles for coming on the program and telling us about their work and visions of making the world a more resource-abundant place when it comes to mental health awareness and services. It's Complicated is a web directory, making it simple to find the right therapist. No matter what kind of therapy you are looking for, It's Complicated offers a safe space to connect with a practitioner. Please pay us a visit online at complicated.life. And if you like the content that you hear on the podcast, you will absolutely love our blog. That is at blog.complicated.life. Again, that's blog.complicated.life. My name is Reese Cox. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.